The following presentation was recorded live by the Jewish Ethics Institute. This coming week's Torah portion is Parashat Korach, which deals with Korach, was the name of a fellow. This was the first attempted coup against um, Moses that we find in the Torah. There's a lot of rebellion we find throughout um, Deuteronomy. Um, Jews complaining and this and that. You know, when they make the golden calf, there's a number of cases of, so to speak, rebellion, the making of the golden calf. The, when they complain about the, where's the beef, they don't like the manna and things like that. But this is the first open coup against the leadership of Moses. Um, that actually someone is contesting Moses' leadership. Um, and it's interesting, that the, and the fellow's name was Korach, who was actually a cousin, first cousin maybe even, to Moshe. And that was part of his complaint, because he agreed the Levites should be the ones leading. But his complaint was that Moses passed him over um, and chose um, people closer, nepotism people to eat. For example, Aaron, of course. Moses chose Aaron as the leader of the Kohanim. Um, he chose a nephew to be the leader of the tribe of, Le of Levi. So, of course, this was all technically, or we believe, at least that's, as you see in this week's parasha, ordained by God, the leadership. But still in all, Korach um, was, uh, as we see, um, attempted to contest the leadership. Um, and then, as we'll see, this is a big source, at least in, in oral law, as to how we view disputes, um, how the various types of disputes within um, Jewish law, how we should treat them, and uh, etc. So, um, one of the one of the key things, one of the, just an interesting question I saw um, as to why why did Korah wait until now? Meaning, if he was disputing Moses' leadership, this was this took place many years, um, uh, at least a few years after the leadership happened after Moses was appointed leader, after Aaron was appointed leader. So why, why was it up until this time? If the, if the contesting the actual leadership of Moshe, he should have done this years ago. So it's just a nice, a very important political statement, um, as, as we all know how politics works. The, the point was really, um, Moshe was riding high up until recently, up until last week's March. Moshe, initially, everyone was happy with his leadership. He was a good guy, knew what he was doing. Um, his popularity ratings were, were very high. Um, after the golden calf, when, when they sinned terribly, God wanted to wipe out the whole nation. Moses the one that pleads with God to, to, uh, to make sure that, um, that the Jews were saved. He saves the Jews. Again, after the meat, they complain about the man. So he gets them uh, beef, he gets them quail. So they're all happy. Up until now, his popularity ratings were great. But in last week's parsha, parsha Shlach, end of, uh, the beginning of last week's parsha, the famous incident of the spies. Um, where they send spies to spy out the land of Israel, they come back, give a bad report. So what happens then is God basically says, because of the bad report of the spies, all the Jewish nation complaining that they don't want to go into Israel, we're all going to die in the desert. And none of this of this initial nation, this, this generation who made it out of the Exodus, came out of Egypt, are going to make it into the land of Israel. Only the next generation, they're all going to die in the desert, as we know, 40 years of wandering. No one, not one of them will make it into the land of Israel, including Moses himself um, and Aaron. So don't make it in, except Joshua and Caleb, the only two. None of, no one alive at that point. So at this point, obviously, just like any good leader, popularity ratings went down. There they were, they were expecting to get into the land of Israel. 
everything was going great, life was going great, and all of a sudden, um, and, and it's their fault, by the way, that they're not going in. They said they don't want to go in. They're complaining. But then when God says, none of you are going to make it alive into Israel, you're all going to die here in the desert. So, that, so now Moses' popularity ratings go down. That's the perfect opportunity to contest the leadership. Right, so Korach comes along and says he was waiting for this perfect opportunity. Again, because he really had no good reason to contest it, as we're going to see. He was doing it just, he wanted the position for himself. He was, it was a pursuit of honor, as we're going to discuss. Um, so, but he just needed that opportunity to jump on the bandwagon. So whenever someone's down, that's the opportunity. So that's how um, they explain this is what happened. Plus, the other beautiful concept that you see, so that's one thing, you, you see that it's just fascinating to me that all the same issues today we have in our political system of popularity ratings, etc. You know, jumping on the bandwagon when the person when the person's down and out. You know, you bring up every complaint about uh, you know from his sort of past. You see the same thing here happening in the Torah um, with Korach and Moshe. Um, the other fascinating thing is, which today I think is also a very modern phenomenon. We think we like to think of it as a modern phenomenon. Which I like to call it Generation V. Which in this generation, we're all the victims. Everyone's a victim, you know, your, your second grade teacher looked at you the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Right? Your grandmother didn't give you enough dolls or toys and whatever it is, everyone has an excuse of why, uh, why they're doing what they're doing, why their life is terrible. So you see that here too, that the, the Jews here in the desert, um, it was their fault. They sent the spies, they complained about it, and now that they're not going to Israel, it's Moshe's fault. They're all coming to Moshe and, and they have this coup against Moshe. Not their fault, even though they caused their own punishment. Um, it's all Moses' fault. He, you know, he should have prayed harder to, to get them out of their jam. So it's always ju- blaming the, uh, the right. The victim is always blaming. Sorry, the victim always gets blamed. Is that what it is? So that's another concept you see from here. But but um, what I'd like to focus on, because that's the topic that we're going to discuss, is this concept of um, dispute resolution. Conflict resolution. Um, in Hebrew, the term is machloket. So what's amazing is many um, like to think that oh, you know, argument, um, dispute is a terrible thing. But as we're going to see, sometimes dispute is a good thing. Dispute is not always bad, um, and that's a, that's the Jewish way, as we're going to see. So I found it's interesting in the in the secular world, the academic world, there are three ways to solve um, dispute. Three ways to approach this. One is to resolve it, end it, and avoid it. Okay, how are you? Okay, so one way of, of it is, is uh, uh, resolve, end, and avoid. That's approach number one. Approach number two is what's called conflict. I think, and this evolved is actually over, I would say, uh, hundreds of years of academia, sort of changed the way we look at um, conflict. And they, you know, realizing that, I think at some point in history, realize that conflict is human nature. There's always going to be conflict, so we have to figure out how to manage it. Not a question of avoiding. You can't always avoid conflict. You can't just say conflict can never happen. At some point, you have to manage the conflict. That's known as conflict management. Recognition that conflict is a natural part of human nature. or must be contained. It cannot be eliminated. So you can't, there's always, if living in a society, you're always going to have some form of disagreement amongst members of society. Okay, that's number two. Number three is conflict transformation, which is a more modern, uh, and more contemporary way of doing. Which is that there are positive aspects in in conflict. Are actually not. It's not something that 
has to just be managed. And actually, there are positive aspects that must be utilized to affect change in society. You know, a protest, concept of a democracy where we protest and we, we protest can affect change. Conflict can affect change, whether it's military conflict or peaceful conflict. But there's a way that conflict can be utilized for the good of society, okay, as we're going to discuss. So what's fascinating, this is, again, in the secular world, um, but Jewish sources got this, I think, uh, predated the um, academia. In the Torah, you find itself these, these different methods, the way Judaism views conflict. Okay, in Jewish sources, that's what I put here. In Jewish sources, we also find these different approaches. Controversy can present a negative force or face, which must be avoided or eliminated. That's what we'll discuss in the context of Korah, this week's Torah portion. However, Judaism views certain types of controversy and conflict as positive and beneficial. So, so in that sense, the Torah um, got all these different methods, and you do find them, as we'll see, um, within the Torah itself. So, fascinating Mishnah. The basis of, of much of this is there's a Mishnah in Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers, um, Chapter 5, Mishnah 17, famous Mishnah, where it discusses two types, it contrasts two types of disputes. The dispute of Hillel and Shammai, which you find throughout the oral or throughout the Talmud. Hillel, the famous house of Hillel, house of Shammai, they were always arguing. Almost every, I don't say every single, but there's probably, I would say, throughout the Talmud, a good 150 arguments between Hillel and Shammai. Okay, about uh, the various points of halach. Okay, and then you have, it contrasts that with the dispute in this week's Torah portion of Korach. Um, argument with motion. Okay, so let's read the mission number two on the sheet here. It says, every controversy, this is what the mission states, every controversy in, that is in the name of heaven, the end thereof is destined to result in something permanent. In Hebrew, the words are sofo lehit kayem, which we'll see what that means. But sofo, the end of it, lehit kayem, will be, will be something of substance that will stand. Um, if the argument is for the sake of heaven, we'll, we'll, we'll explain what that means. But one that is not in the name of heaven, the end thereof is not destined to result in something permanent. Okay, very vague statement. And now the Mishnah goes on to give an example of each, which is the kind of controversy that is in the name of heaven. Such was the controversy between Hillel and Shammai. That's called the argument for the sake of heaven. And which is the kind of controversy that is not in the name of heaven, such was the controversy of Korach and all his congregation. Okay, so that's the famous Mishnah, Pirkei Avot. Um, not so clear exactly what it means. Okay, it's just giving you contrast, two different cases in our history, what exactly was the difference. By the way, there are many other arguments throughout the Torah. What's, what's interesting is, um, as we mentioned before, there's resolve, end, and avoid. So that the, one of the first um, examples they bring is, first conflict you find in the Torah is Cain and Abel. Right, the famous two stories of the brothers. They resolved it very quickly. One brother killed the other one, that's the end of the, and it's resolved. Right, you could end a conflict with ending with violence, usually I mean, not in Iraq and Afghanistan, but in other places um, throughout history, usually violence ends, ends the conflict in a certain sense. I mean, you, end it, you could end it easily. I don't know, easily, but quickly. So that's one way of ending. Obviously, violence is one way of ending a conflict. Um, the Torah doesn't approve of that in many cases, although war, of course, is sanctioned. But um, in general, that's not the example of a way of resolving conflict. Second time we find, actually, it's interesting, I just didn't mention this before, second um, thing we find in the Torah, the second story of conflict is the story of Lot and Abraham. Um, famous story in Parshat Lech Lecha, when the 
shepherds of Lot, the shepherds of Abraham aren't getting along. Lot's shepherds would be would go in and eat in private people's fields. He would, they would allow their sheep to just, you know, pasture anywhere, stealing from people. Abraham's shepherds, they were more ethical, more moral. They weren't happy with that, so he says they didn't get along. Started fighting with each other. So Abraham came along and he said, "Listen, Lot was his nephew. He said you just go, you go to a different area. Let's just separate." We obviously we have different ethical and moral values. We can't live in the same society because it's just not going to work. So that's called avoidance. That's another way of, of ending conflict, which is avoid each other. I always tell these people come to me when they're having issues with their parents. I spoke about this, I think, a few weeks back with, you know, if someone got, uh, when we talk about Kibbut uh, Avein, honoring your parents, before Mother's Day we spoke about that. It's yesterday was Father's Day. So we said sometimes in cases where there's conflict between a child and a parent, the best thing is just child moves to another place, another neighbor, another town, where you're not having that daily conflict. You know, if you Skype, it's not the same conflict as when you're in the same house. So if you don't live nearby, that, that's called avoidance. That's another way of solving conflict, is avoidance. Obviously in a marriage that doesn't work. That's not a good thing. Avoidance. <laughs> uh, won't work in a marriage. I mean, it can work, but then I usually end the conflict. I think you uh, just said to me two minutes ago about taking a vacation from, separate from one's <laughs> spouse. So Once in a while, that's, that's a mini, that's a it's mini, healthy, yes. A mini it's healthy, but it doesn't end the conflict. <laughs> it's a healthier. Um, so that's, that's the second, uh, you find this concept of Torah again, of avoidance. Lot, Lot and, um, and Avram just said, okay, we'll go, we'll part our separate ways. Um, right, that's called avoidance. Um, that, that again, that works in some cases, but it doesn't work in others. It could be a good fundraiser for your extortion because he does tape everything, David. <laughs> 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 play that for your and wife. Jewish <laughs> ethics is there is an ethics system. You have some ethics. Um, okay, so so getting back to the mission here. So we have, so the, the mission is, is now contrasting, saying something else. It's contrasting the dispute of Shammai and Hillel versus the dispute of Korach and Moshe and Moses. So, so what exactly is the difference and what is, how do we understand this contrast? So let's read the next paragraph. So the next paragraph says like this, paragraph 3 on the page. It says, that is to say, this is from um, Avadi Bartanura, who is a commentary on the Mishnahis. In Pirkeavot, so he says like this: He says that is to say, the people of that, peop that the people of controversy are destined to exist and not be destroyed, as with the dispute between Hillel and Shammai that were not destroyed. So Hillel and Shammai remain; both remain throughout their lives. Neither them nor the students of um, neither them nor the students of Hillel and Shammai were were uh, were destroyed. But Korach and his congregation were destroyed, as we know. The fight of Korach: what happens? The ground opens up, swells them up. That was Moshe didn't dispute them, right? They wanted to take over the leadership. Moses said, listen, it's, I'm saying it's from God. You don't believe me? Let God decide. God will tell us. The, the story goes, he told them, bring your fire pans of Ketoret, and let's see, we'll both bring an offering to God, and then we'll see which one God, uh, which fire God uh, will accept, so to speak. And God, basically what happens is, they bring the fire, God, the ground opens up under Korach and his 200 men, and um, they're lost forever. Okay? Um, so, so, so that's what he's, he's translating. When the Mishnah says the, um, it's not going to result in anything permanent, he's saying that at the end of the day, it's not, uh, there's not going to be anything left if you're not arguing for the right purposes. Okay, there's no kiyum. So that's number one. He says, but Korach and his congregation were destroyed. They heard the explanation of what does it mean the end. In the Mishnah it says, 
um, the end is not destined to result in something permanent. So what's, what does it mean, the end? So he explains, the explanation of the end, quote-unquote, its purpose and the matter is needed. The controversy which is in the name of heaven, the purpose and its desirable end is to obtain the truth. And this continues to exist, as I said, that from a disagreement, the truth will be revealed as revealed in the disputes between Hillel and Shaman. That the law is like the school of Hillel. Right? Meaning at the end of the day, when you have a dispute, and this is something very important, only one side could be right, technically, in a dispute. You see that, and that's not always true, but technically speaking, when you're dealing with a law issue, Hillel and Shaman, um, only one side could be correct. What is the halach? What is the law? Is the law like Hillel? Is the law like Shaman? Right? So he's saying, as long as both sides of the argument are seeking truth, and that's called, when we say for the sake of heaven, obviously, it means we're not, it's not only in a religious context, um, leaving religion out of it, it means the point is when you have an argument, are both sides trying to get to the real truth here, or is there some other factor involved in the argument besides the truth, okay, besides seeking truth? He says a controversy which is not for the sake of heaven, like Korah, its purpose is to achieve power and the love of victory. So meaning, Korah, what did he want? He wanted honor. He was after the pursuit, he wanted the leadership position. That's all he wanted. He was no, like we said, he waited for this opportune time. Moshe was on a down and out because of the story of the spies. His popularity ratings were down. He realized this is, he can wiggle in now to the position. Just like in our political world today, it's always, you know, when you realize the other party's hurting, so that's when we, you know, we can come in. Uh, what just happened with Eric Cantor, right? Whatever the case is, well, it wasn't so down and out there. But the point is, you know, is you, you're, it's an opportunity to get the position. It's about the position. Most political circles, and I won't say all, I don't want to generalize here, but in, in probably 80 to 90% of the time in politics, it's about the position as opposed to more the philosophy. Democrat, Republican, Libertarian. What? Only 80%? <laughs> I'm being nice. Uh, David ran for office. I don't want to <coughs> run for office you in the past. Give me the 1%. <laughs> yeah, okay. Thank you. So that's, it's easier to be from the 20% than the 1%. Okay, so... so um, a controversy which is not for the sake of heaven, its purpose is to achieve power and the love of victory. And its end will not continue to exist, as we found with the dispute of Korah, its congregation, that its purpose and their desired goal was to achieve honor and power, and the opposite was their result. So, when something, uh, it was a different mission, Greg Yellow, it says, Herod of Achar someone who chases after honor, honor runs away from you. It says, uh, if you don't chase honor, then the honor will chase after you. Okay, so, so uh, whether that's tried and true, it's debatable. But, uh, but um, I, I think it is, actually, in my experience it is. Um, the less one runs after honor, the more meaning. Because many times when you're chasing a position, you know, it looks, you, you, people see right through you. It's hard to, many times it's, it's, uh, it's very obvious the person just wants the position. It's not necessarily philosophical, uh, you know, we're making to change the world. There are, listen, there are some politicians out there who, who do, are doing it for altruistic reasons. But as we know, they're not very few. Far <laughs> between from either party or any party, any uh, probably any place in the world. Um, so, so the uh, so what he's saying here is so that's how he's translating. Just, just yes. so we can clarify, just so yes. we can clarify the record. <laughs> my my own personal experience is that view is not restricted to politicians. That's true in. Yes, 100%. It's true in, in, yeah, we're going to talk about it. every conference. Congregations, uh, both, both church and synagogue. Yeah. It's true yeah, in, in business settings. Uh -huh. It's true in doctors' 100%. offices. 100%. That's what we're going to show right here. Yes, 100%. Uh, I just didn't want you to restrict just yes. to, you know, since uh, we're on tape here. 
<laughs> you look, the only reason I'm talking about this is because this this dispute of Korach and Moses was a political position. It was for position. That's what he's saying. It was all about position. You're right, 100%. Not at all limited to. Uh, to but the, po- the point is, it was all about honor, as we'll see. I mean, even though, again, there was no very little rationale to Korach's whole argument. As a matter of fact, Medrash gives some background. says there was one guy who didn't get killed at the end. His name is On Ben Pelas. He was one of the people in Korach's congregation. And the Medrash says he wasn't killed while his wife talked him out of it. It's always the wife that saves the husband from going to political uh, Hopefully, anyway. doing, uh, doing again, Rabbi. Let's try to stay okay, okay. to the factual and, okay. and not, so, uh, not the so the wife. Uh, creative. You know, I'm saying he always like uh, like you know Jeb Bush is thinking of running that, but so he said whatever my wife tells me to do. If my wife doesn't want me to run, I'll run. It's always the wife, bottom line, that that's gonna very make often. the decision. Yeah, very often. I'm saying because it's family, especially for Good or bad, a position right? like that. No, where your whole life, uh, you know, the whole famous chorus wife to promote. Well, chorus wife, yes. Right, so it's all... Uh, Again, just to take the... <laughs> you, you know, Rabbi, that... that <laughs> the wife. Blame out the women, yeah. Okay, but... <laughs> you know, I was just story here. frequent state. So, so <laughs> on the palace, what did she say? How did she talk him out of uh, the fight? She told him... On the palace told him... Meaning, what's the point? The Korach was fighting for Moses' position. So on the palace, by the way, was number... He had a position. Many of these people had positions. They were numbers... They just were number twos. They were, they were vying for the number one spot. They were vying for the number one slot. Okay, so on the Pell's wife said, Korach is vying for the number one slot. If he wins the battle against Moshe, he's going to be number one. You're still going to be number two. Right? So what are you gaining? You know, it's meaning many times we're, we're in a fight and we're fighting for a cause. And, and we realize even the result, even if we win the argument, we're still not going to have you know, the number one slot. So what are you fighting for? That's how she talked about it. But the point being is that many times arguments are not rational. If you turn the page here, because we don't want to just pick on politicians, you see on the top here, so I have an example of other conflicts. Um, besides, uh, some are political, some are not. But <coughs> obviously, the obvious one is Palestinian versus Israeli, um, right? Um, Israel versus uh, Palestinians, Israeli versus Palestinians, where there's no, and not even, even if you don't want to pick on one side, but um, there's no, at least, the goal here, as he says here, is are we seeking the truth in the conflict? We always have to look at how do you know if it's worth this argument? You have to ask yourself, as an individual or as a party or as a politician or as a husband and wife, a husband or wife, so a spouse, what am I, as this argument, that's what the mission is saying, so for this guy, is it for the sake of heaven? Not for the sake of heaven, is there a religious cause in the argument? The sake of heaven means am I seeking the truth? The way you know if an argument is a conflict is a good conflict is are we both parties here seeking the truth if we're just you know no matter what I want to win whether even if I find out the truth um, so then that's not an argument for the sake of heaven that's not an argument that's worth having is what the mission is saying um, for, that's what it says about Shami and Hillel they each agreed at the end of the day that Allah was like Hillel and I didn't put it here because we ran in a room um, maybe I did later no I didn't put it on the sheet but the Talmud says at the end of the day Hillel and Shammai were best friends. The, the school of Hillel, the whole sh- school of Shammai, says they marry into each other's families. Even though they didn't agree philosophically very strongly, on, even on things relevant to marriage, it says. Like, they, I don't remember the exact examples it brings, but it says, like, this one said, if uh, this type of marriage is not even a good marriage, it's not a valid, halachically marriage, not a halachic valid marriage. But they still ended up, their families married into each other. 
the end of the day, Shammai realized the halacha is not like him, the law is not like him, the rule is like the like Hila. They still loved each other at the end of the day because they were seeking the truth. So as long as the result of the conflict, you, you're having a conflict, knowing objectively, and it's very hard to be objective in the case that you're seeking the truth, that's a valid argument. But if your goal is just to win the argument without whether it's true or not, so then there's no, then there's, that's not a valid argument. That's the argument of Korach. Okay, where his goal is to, to achieve the position at all costs. Irrelevant to whether the truth. The guy, Moses said, listen, tomorrow we're going to know the truth. He knew the truth. He just, sometimes power, hunger for power is so, uh, you know, blinding that he, you know, he knew he'd probably get killed. But it's worth it in case he might get the position. But you also have an issue. You have, you know, Hillel Shemai, the school schools, there was a respect for each other. It wasn't that they thought the other were monsters. Well, that's exactly the point. Okay. Meaning, you don't make it personal. If you're making, once you make an argument personal, yeah. so then it's not about the truth anymore. That's exactly the point. Korach and Moshe made it personal. Here you respected Moshe, you didn't respect the, the, the process, to say, how the choices were made, whatever, whatever it was. was but he didn't respect Moshe. First of all, he was cynical, he would ask him questions. Right, yeah, right. exactly. respect in regards to his argument. I mean, I, I don't know if I'd even use the word argument in regards to Hillel and Shammai that would debate. Which is a little softer term, I think, than argument. Argument in itself. Is no, but it was conflict. They disagreed on on what the law is. disagreement, but it's not usually considered. Um, conflict. You're saying the word conflict. Not as combative. An argument is combative. Debates. I've been to some hit, pretty heated debates. <laughs> but maybe you're right. There's conflict and dispute. So I would call Hill and Shami was dispute. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Motion Korach was a conflict. Real conflict. Uh, um, and it got violent at the end. Um, but, the, but the point is, so again, let's say it takes the Palestinians and Israelis. There, there's no, again, I, I, non-objectively, I would say the Israelis maybe are seeking the truth. But even if you assume, let's say, both, there's very, both sides, Palestinian side for sure, I don't think anyone's seeking the truth about history. There's always revisionist history, and there's some of it on both sides probably, um, where, where it's not about the truth. It's about who's going to win this war. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what happened, who's right, that's irrelevant to the argument. I would say the same thing with Democrats and Republicans. No, they, maybe there was a concept of philosophy. I think a lot of it is about power, obviously. Um, even today, where, where I think our system, and this is, I don't know, maybe David, you can shed some light on this, is, was based on, um, let's see, who's going to, we have a certain amount of, of uh, let's say, uh, assets the country has, who's going to be in charge of those, as- of those assets, in a certain sense, okay? Today, where we have less, uh, it's a lot less, we don't have enough um, to, to go around. It used to be there's enough to go around. So it's just a matter of control. Today, there's not even enough to go around, so it's a question of who gets to decide which which people get the money, okay, who gets the money. So a lot of it has to do with, so it's nothing to do with truth. It's not a question of truth, it's again, it's a question, it's a question of power. There's very little, um, I would say, I'd venture to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, anyone can correct me if I'm wrong, that there's, between Democrats and Republicans, it's, not, it's no longer about philosophy per se. Um, no, no one's really seeking the truth anymore. Mm-hmm. Indeed. <laughs> so, that's no, good I'm enough. Not. David, <laughs> you're, no, David, you're this, is good enough for me. I would debate that. I think there is a yeah. sense of on sides seeking the truth. The question is not so much that as it is whether people are willing to fight to solve a problem. Right, no one's willing to work together. Meaning, even if you prove the truth to one side, you're not willing to back off of it to, f- to at least solve the problem. Right. Okay. So that's that part. So it means you're not. At the end of the day, you're not seeking truth. 
you might start it with a philosophy. Everyone has a rationale why they're arguing. Well, Some give up form of for philosophy. Moment, just at least to fix the problem at hand, as opposed to just right. I mean, the, 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 the truth is more problem, more important than the problem. No, that that might be fine. That might be fine if you say this. Uh, this is the truth. I really believe it's the truth. But the question is, when someone this. proves to you that it's not the truth, based on whatever, if philosophically or rationally, you still won't agree. Still won't give in. That's where it becomes a problem. Well, I don't want to. That's, that's a hot topic. I don't want to. Let's let's take a different shul board versus rabbi. That's an easier. Right. So that's a conflict where. No. <laughs> The, at least the board never seeking the truth. It's not about truth. It's about many times it's about control. Who's going to make the decisions for the shul? Who's going to you know? It's, it's that's becomes more of an issue. Does the rabbi get to make decisions, or does the board get to make decisions? You know, ritual committee. You know, they have 15 committees because they don't trust the rabbi. They don't want the rabbi making any decisions, right? So, so is it about truth? Or again, it's about control. It's not about uh, you know. Many times the rabbi is saying, listen. This is the t- what the Torah says. The board says we don't care what the Torah says. It's irrelevant what, what the Torah says. We, right, it's about control. So especially in bigger, larger synagogues where it's, it's a lot of money in play, what does the money go for, etc. So that's another example. Obviously, business partners, um, monetary disputes, you know, not necessarily business partners. But anytime you have a monetary dispute, um, as we're going to talk about, uh, comp- concept of compromise, is it about truth or always or is it about you know other things it's about it's a money issue many times it's very hard to agree when you're wrong so when you have a court case even when you litigate something um, and the losing party always never does not walk out happy they don't say okay well uh, like like Hill and Shaman the guy you know the halacha was like him okay the ruling was the judge ruled like him great so he's right everybody's happy doesn't work like that you're always going to have one side of the uh, when you're dealing with uh, ma- monetary issues Obviously, one side is going to be losing, not going to be happy. Okay, as opposed to like we're saying, Hill and Shami. At the end of the day, when they understood their wrongs, so they were happy. And when they celebrated with Shami, came to a conclusion. Okay, pro-life versus pro-choice is a classical example of two sides that no one is seeking the truth. <laughs> no one's hearing the other side's argument. Meaning, part of seeking the truth is to sit down at the table and discuss it in a rational way, and to hear, to try to listen to the arguments of the other side. You can disagree, like you said, it's debate. Mm-hmm. You might disagree vehemently, but at the end of the day, you need to talk to each other. And this is a classical case where there's no talking to each other. And well, you know, each side dug, digs in its heels, just like as the Palestinian Israelis. No one's interested in hearing the other side. There's no concept of the other side. The other sides are all extremists. Both sides, right? Every side is the other. Wherever you, wherever side you disagree with, is an extremist. They're extremists. They're crazy. They're religious fanatics, or they're you know, or they're liberals, whatever it is, right? So there's no concept of arguing it, of even debating it with each other. It doesn't exist, especially in our country. Um, husband versus wife, many times it's the same thing, where you, there's no hearing the other side. It's not about, it's about winning the argument. It's not about finding out who's right. Okay. I'm not sure about that. Okay. I'll show you. Never happens. The man side. Man's always right. So, <laughs> no one's uh, commenting on that one. Or <laughs> I'll shout the day for cutting. Okay. You're out of the deep on your own. <laughs> okay. So so uh, 
So, so more but just to summarize it, I think what we're saying here is there, there's, in a certain sense, what we're saying is, is what the goal is. And not all conflicts are negative. There are positive and negative conflicts. Conflicts, okay? According to Jewish views, what we're saying is there are conflicts which are good. Korach is the epitome of a conflict that's evil. That, that's not the wrong approach to conflict. If you're chasing honor, if you're chasing the position, if you just the result is just to be to win the argument, obviously that's not a good conflict. If the result is, as we're saying, um, to to have positive change, or to you have a philosophical view which you're trying to stand up for, a moral a value, um, which by the way even today that's a problem in, in American society. There's no concept, um, and I, I want to pick on certain, but I'm sure we all know what they are. Certain philosophical concepts, if you just mention them. If you mention any concept of a moral value, it's like you're you're this foe, you're a foe, you're have a phobia, you're extremist, you're a religious fanatic. You can't even say it anymore. You can't even stand up for moral certain moral values in society without being branded and and automatically. So it's not even no one will talk to you. No one will even hear your side of the argument. You can't even talk to people in society about certain issues because you're branded if uh, you're branded a uh, this foe but that foe. So that's a major problem, which which we're saying that's wrong. You know, it's if you if you have a philosophical point, you have to be ready to argue it out, to hear the other side. The only way you can have an argument is if you hear the other side. That's exactly, by the way, I forgot to mention this. Korach, it's interesting. If you look back to the Mishnah, the contrast. So the Mishnah says, contrast. It says, what's an, an example of a argument for the sake of heaven? That's Hillel and Sh- the argument of Hillel and Shammai, the two opposing forces. Hillel and Shammai, right? If you, if you, and then when it says, what's the argument, epitome of an argument, example of an argument, not for the sake of heaven? Korach and his congregation. In Hebrew, the words are Korach va'adato. Okay, Korach and his congregation. It should be Korach and Moses. Who's arguing? Just like we said, Hillel and Shammai, the two opposing forces. Why, when we're quoting the argument about Korach, it should say Korach and Moses. Those are the two sides of the argument. So what, what I saw, some of the commentaries explain is because no, there was no argument. Moshe, Korach wouldn't even listen to Moshe. It's not like he came to Moshe and said, listen, I have a problem with your leadership. I want to take over. I believe it was wrongly done. There was nothing to talk about. He didn't want to even listen to Moses. That's exactly what we find today in our society, where you try to argue moral values and there is no, no one wants to listen to you. There's nothing to talk about. There is no argument. You could only have an argument when there are two sides arguing. If one side says, this is my, you know, do you like it or not, this is my view, that's not an argument. That's a statement. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's so the same thing here. Korach, that was part of his problems. He wouldn't even listen to Moshe's side. Moshe was saying, listen, this came from God. You know, I'll prove it to you. He wouldn't, he wouldn't hear it. He wasn't interested. So that's why it says Korach and his congregation, as opposed to Korach and Moses. Moses never argued, because he didn't get a chance to. Okay, so that's, a, that's an important point. So, so now, as we mentioned before, um, there are different methods of resolving. There's different methods of resolving conflict. There's violence, can enable separation, murder, and avram. Um, the, the Torah also, as we discussed here in the past, is a major concept within Jewish philosophy. Is majority rules. The concept of democracy comes from the Torah. That majority wins out when it, when a way of resolving conflict is even if you disagree vehemently disagree with the other party, but may the best man win, not in a duel. But by the vote, okay. So the, to, that's a Torah concept um, that majority rules. The Torah says, and we quote um, in quote here, but it's Rabim 
It's a verse in Parshat Mishpatim, I believe, and we discussed it there. And majority rules, in, whether it's in court of justice, um, whether it's Hillel Shammai, by the way, that's the way, the only reason Hillel won the arguments was not because Hillel was smarter or had a better argument, per se. They, were, they both had good rational arguments about what the law is. Hillel, the reason why Hillel, we rule like Hillel is because he had more students. His yeshiva had the majority, and that's the, the law of the Torah. It says majority rules. Okay, so, that's, so this concept comes from the Torah. So it's a very important way of resolving conflict is um, majority follow the majority um, and number four D yeah, which is very important and this is what's primarily the goal actually it says in, in almost all conflict is, is what's called Peshara compromise okay which today might be called um, arbitration or mediation which is really that's what it's about many times when you go to a judge in front of a judge today they'll say or whether it's a monetary dispute they'll send you to mediation whether it's a um, family dispute, right? Uh, custody, whatever, divorce battle. So they send you for mediation, right? Which is really that's what it is. It's about compromise. The judge can rule. Well, if the judge rules, as we'll see, then no one's. Uh, many times, uh, well, I don't know about that. You could say, well, only one person leaves happy. If we can make all the parties happy, in a certain sense, that's a better goal, at least according to the Jewish perspective. Okay, so that's all. I want to focus on that for a few minutes here. Um, so pshara is the, is the Hebrew word for compromise, pshara, which today your average standard betin, um, that's the way they work. The way it works, it's a fascinating way. Um, in Jewish court of law, you always have to have three judges. Okay, so how does it work? If you have two parties, two um, conflicting parties, the f- it's a fascinating system. The way it works is because if you have a betin, this guy lives in this community, he lives in, uh, you know, the Satmar community, and this one lives in. Uh, different in the Muncie community so now he's going to say "My, if we go to Beth in the Muncie they're impartial they're going to rule with you because you're part of their community those are the rabbis in Muncie so we want to so I want to go to my Beth so the way the system works is of compromise is each litigant gets to choose one judge okay for the Beth so you can choose one judge the other and the other person the other party chooses the judge and then those two judges together get to choose the third judge mm-hmm. so that's compromise this way no one can claim, well, the judges were impartial to me. You chose a, a Satmar judge and I wanted a Muncie or Bar Park judge. Okay, so it's a fascinating uh, concept, the way it works. Um, that's the concept of Bishara. It's, it's all about compromise. We need to make sure there's no impartiality. No one can claim, even if we don't accuse, of course, we don't assume a, a, a judge or a rabbi is impartial, but we don't even want to be perceived as impartial. And therefore, we compromise and let make sure all the parties are happy by each party getting to choose one rabbi in the pen. Okay, so that's number one. Yeah. Can I just mention a little quick P.S. about this? There was a there was an Israeli author that wrote a book about the Arab Spring. Israeli guy, and he made an interesting comment that there is no word in Arabic for compromise. And I thought, yeah, okay. that kind of says it. All. I had to mention that uh, right here. Yeah. I What's so. the name of the book? I have to I have to check it to tell you. Okay, so I will though. I will though. It's very interesting. Very okay, about. so so again, so this no concept. Problem. What's this concept? Sorry, it's interesting. So you find in the Torah a few verses which seem to mention this concept of compromise. So one is it says there's a famous verse in Zechariah. It says uh, these are the things that you shall do: speak every man the truth to his neighbor, execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. 
Okay, so execute the judgment of truth. So that would sound like you go to a court of law and they rule. Rashi there says, what's the judgment of peace? What does that mean? Rashi says that's referring to pshara, compromise. When we're saying the ideal, it seems to be saying is compromise. The ideal is not to go to a court of law and have a judge make a system, a, a ruling of justice per se, of who's right, but to try to find a compromise between the two warring parties. That's always the more ideal way of ending the, the conflict. Um, and that's what the Gemara in Sanhedrin says. Um, actually, there's another Gemara which I didn't have room for on the sheet. I'll just see. First Gemara, you find this. It says like this. There's a Gemara. So I like staying on one sheet, so I didn't put it all in. But Gemara brings... Um, by the way, even the famous verse, which I also didn't put here, he's going to quote in a second. Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdov. It's a famous verse in Deuteronomy 16. It says, Justice, justice you shall pursue. You may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God gives you. So that also, that justice is also defined, according to many, as pshara, as compromise. Now, is the word justice in the Torah, what true justice, because we're going to explain soon in a second, if you go to a court of law and one party walks out happy and one doesn't, so in a certain sense, that's strict justice, yes, but one person's not happy. True justice would be if all, if all the parties of the conflict can be happy. And that only can happen with compromise. Okay, so... so well, why is that true justice? Just because everybody uh, reaches where they are by compromise, why does that... Why so, do you so define a good question. We're going to explain in a second. I have in the back here. I'm not, I don't know the answer. <coughs> that time, okay. I just saw this. I'm going to read in the back. But but the point is, in a strict justice. The, que- the question is really how you define justice. But strict justice means one party is not going to be happy. One party is going to walk away and not happy. Okay. Now you're right. Now if we're seeking truth, if we're seeking what the law is, and we go to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court rules one way, and we and we say, well, the Supreme Court is telling us that's the truth. Now, law is the the law, the ruling of the Supreme Court is truth, so then you're right. We, we receive the truth and we both agree to the truth, but in monetary disputes, sometimes there's not truth. Well, I would draw a distinction. Yeah. So I would say that if you're talking about um, pro-life versus pro-choice, mm-hmm. you could have people on both sides of that, All you know, and just because five out of nine people think it's one way or the other doesn't make it either truth or justice. True. But if you have a monetary dispute, uh, you could more easily arrive, I would argue, you could more easily arrive at at a factual outcome as to who's entitled to the the money. Well, I actually, I would venture to say, just for argument's sake, the opposite way, because pro-life, pro-choice, let's take that as an example, only one side could be right. Can't, they can't both be well, right. One side could, we can yes. compromise and say, okay, you can do abortions up to three months, or up to, that's a compromise maybe between two sides, that, but only that, one that could be th- correct. No, that presumes that there is a right and wrong. There. Yeah, yes. Well, that's and, always, and, and that's why we're, 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 there may not be justice or right or wrong in a, in a philosophical issue. Yeah, but, but you can, there you, is. You're right. In, but in you, can arrive society, at, you, you can arrive to a right and wrong frequently in a monetary no, dispute. So, so let me, let me explain. You know, I, I, I owe Brian $5,000. You know, and you know, you can recite the facts and... and no, so you're right. I'm not, I'm not saying you can never arrive to wrong. could agree. Let me explain. I just, wanna, I just want to correct one thing. Is First of all, in the Torah, there is right and wrong. If you're going with the Torah, it's God-given. So then there is a right and wrong. 
there might be a debate as to what's right and wrong, but there had only one, let's say, in the, in the let's take the question of, of a right to life or, or uh, pro-choice. So only one of those philosophical views are right in the Torah. In Western society, we, we don't like saying, you know, everyone's right. We want to make sure, God forbid, to say someone's wrong. We don't do that anymore. Now to say anyone's wrong. What you're saying, no, what I'm you're saying is, here, is that, you when know, you have conflicting parties, so let's say there's a monetary dispute where it's not black and white. Many times it isn't. You're right. If it's black, guy stole money. He's he's wrong. Well, he needs to pay stealing. up. No, but I'm saying if you owe money, you borrow money. You need to pay up. There's no uh, that's that's black and white. There are many cases in monetary disputes where it's not so clear. You know, the guy canceled, like we said, he canceled a contract. He, legally, he was in the right, but the other way, this guy got screwed out of six million dollars because he canceled the contract. So in cases like that, is what we're saying. It's best to compromise as opposed to as opposed to ruling one way. You know, it's legally, let's say, take that as an example. Someone canceled the contract. Well, legally, he wasn't obligated. He never, he never actually signed, or there was a mistake in the contract, so it's a loophole. So that, that's a perfect example of something where, legally, if we go to court, the court rules, listen, he didn't sign the contract. He's not obligated. Just because this guy is now screwed out of $6 million, it's not your problem. Legally, he's off the hook. Compromise would say, in that case, let's try to work it out in a way where both parties are not you know, get something, uh, that's where I mean compromise. You're right, not every case should be compromised. If it's black and white, then there has to be strict justice. If someone stole, there needs to be justice. If, if there was a criminal act, for sure, there needs to be justice. We're not saying in a case of criminal act, we should compromise. Stealing or someone owes someone money. There are many monetary disputes where it's, n- it's, it's not clear. <coughs> or it may, it may make any sense. I don't agree. You make sense. I don't agree with you. But right, that's you, fine. You. <laughs> as long as we're both seeking the truth, that's good. So, how do, you do, so how, do you, how do you take what you just said and balance it against the statements, don't favor a rich person because he's rich and don't favor a poor person because he's poor? You might want to, because he's poor, you might want to make that compromise to... You know, yes, to exactly. Truth, no, but in cases, what we're saying is in cases where there's, like you're saying, if it's a criminal, that's applied, even a monetary dispute, but where there's a right person, there's clear right and wrong, 100%, we shouldn't compromise. I don't think we're saying we should compromise in those cases. Well, you just need an example of the contract. The guy legally might be able to cancel the contract, but he might want to Yeah, but the point is, so there's something, there's a concept we'll see in Alcha, it's called Yoti Deshomai, meaning that even though I might be off the hook legally, there's no legal recourse, but when you get up to heaven, you're still going to have to pay for your act. Okay, so, with the judges so, so therefore, you could try to rectify it here, if so possible. So are you suggesting that Bastian would suggest to the two parties to compromise, or are they going to say we're, we're going to force a compromise? So that's a good question. So let, let's turn the page here. Because we're running out of time. So let, let's just read the bottom, before we turn the page, sorry. Bottom, um, bottom paragraph from the Talmud says... I think like, they have time to solve the whole uh, pro-life thing about a minute. Okay, Joshua. <laughs> not to mention, not, not to mention the shoal versus the rabbi. You can do that in the, in the last 15 seconds. Settlement that compromises meritorious act was written. And then execute. head over to Emmanuel to help them with <laughs> minor conflagration. <laughs> execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates, and let none of you devise evil in your hearts against his neighbor. Surely, where there is strict justice, there is no peace. Where there is peace, there is no strict justice. So, how do you reconcile the same verse that says? A judgment of truth and peace in your gates. That's what they're trying to do here. So surely where there's strict justice, there's no peace. Where there's peace, there's no strict justice. What is that kind of justice with, with peace abides? Which justice has peace with it? You must say arbitration. So is in the case of David, as we read, and David executed justice and righteousness. So when you arbitrate and come to a solution of peace between the warring parties, so that's where you have both. You have justice and peace. 
both parties agree to this to this settlement. Okay, so now look in the back. This is from uh, J.B. J. Salvechik, who uh, died in 1993. So he wrote a, a piece, the Torah Way of Justice, which sort of highlights this, and I'll, I'll read it quickly if we have time. Um, but let, let's just actually skip down to the highlights. Um, here, see, no, before that, he says something very interesting. He says, in Western society, the immediate issue is resolved, but the conflict persists with ensuing social discord. Meaning, because if you rule, if you have two warring parties, and you rule like one of them, by a strict, in a strict court of law, so then the social discord still remains. So they might not, legally, you solve the problem, um, but they're still obviously going to be fighting. Let's say take the Ashby Towers or right, whatever, the neighbors, you have a neighbor, case like that. So very nice. We rule, the courts rule one way, but the people in the neighborhood are still throwing eggs at the construction workers. Okay, so you, you didn't solve the problem. Okay. Um, the secular judge is seemingly indifferent to this failure since justice and that harmony was objective. Right? What is a judge's job in, in secular society? To achieve justice. Supreme Court rules, they don't care that it's going to cause riots. Many times you have right, you know, the, the grand jury rules and then there's riots in the street. Right? So you solved, you, legally you, you ruled, but the social harmony is, is totally chaos. Okay? So he's saying shal- shalom is for social workers. You know, that's what he says. Sersha in our society, you know, peace is for social workers, psychologists, that's their problem. Listen, the judges rule, many times they'll take away custody from one party, they'll give them to the other party, not realizing social ramifications for these children. And not always doing what's best interest of the children. Legally, the child goes to this party, that's it. Social ramifications are relevant. Psychologists will deal with the ramifications, social ramifications, right? Um, so he says, the Torah, however, wants the judge to be not a magistrate, but a teacher and a healer. The job of a judge is much more than justice in the Torah. He should seek to persuade both parties to retreat from their presumed points of advantage. He should preach to them about the corrosive personal and social effects of sustained rancor. His responsibility is primarily to enlighten rather than to render decisions on points of law. First ver- verse therefore projects the social welfare of society and the happiness of individuals' primary ideals as being a truly higher form of justice. Peshara, compromise, is socially and morally preferred even if the strict din, meaning the law, is neutralized. In its highest sense, justice obtains when people are reconciled. And that's why he says the second verse. So, second verse states, and David executed justice and righteousness towards his people. The Talmud explains, surely where there is strict justice, there is no righteousness. Where there is righteousness, there is no justice. When do justice and righteousness coincide? Only in Peshara. This verse is concerned with the attainment of tzedek. In, in Aristotelian logic, there is a law of contradiction. It states that a thesis and its antithesis cannot both be valid. It follows from this logic that when two litigants present opposing claims, only one can be right. Strict logic demands the application of din, of law, whereby the claim of the righteous party will be vindicated while the other party will be discredited. Allah, however, believes that absolute right and wrong can be realized only in heaven, as David, similar to what you were saying before. Sometimes there is no absolute right and wrong, and at least in this, we can't decide what's absolute right and wrong. In dealing with imperfect man, we posit that no man is totally wrong or right, and that in the case of the litigants, both are partially right and wrong. So this, please agree with you more than me. The application of, of law can only take into account the of obvious surface conditions. It fails to perceive subtleties underneath which dilute our certainty about the right and wrong of the litigants. Each has some responsibility for the situation and is partially guilty of the misunderstanding for misleading innuendos and for contributing indirectly to a climate in society which places others at a disadvantage. Strict justice deals with plain facts and salient rea- reality. 
Real responsibility ever goes much deeper and is obscured from the scrutiny of the court. Metaphysically, no one is entirely absolved in situations of conflict. Sadek, therefore, is truly realized only through Peshara, through compromise, which declares the parties both winners and losers. So everyone walks out understanding they, they won to a certain degree and then they lost to a certain degree. So we're all equal at the end of the day. Thus, Peshara is not only socially desi- desirable, as the first verse claims, but is also morally just. The principle of Tzedek demands that Mishpat reflect the existential condition of man's inevitable imperfections. So, so you don't like that? No. And I, I would argue, you know, last night I was watching, or this weekend, um, some of the Supreme Court cases, uh, ranging from Brown v. Board of Education uh, to the early cases in the 60s on, on segregation and integration. Okay, the Supreme Court ruled we had riots in the country. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't oh, think there's anybody that's that... that's an example of... Right, that's, a, that's an example of, you know, they made the right cast. ruling, and, and as a result, there were still rioting, and, and people argued, you know, all sorts of, I would call it mishigas, as to why they had the right to discriminate. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, so, so you're right. So, well, sometimes... There's a need for violence. That's a whole different story. Right. Uh, <laughs> so that's a, that's a different class. Totally. But uh, but this is a this probably can give ten sessions on conflict resolution. Still won't get it all. In. It's a tough topic. Actually, I, I was looking on uh, for two weeks preparing this class because I knew I was giving. Uh, so I two weeks to think about Cora. Couldn't find any good sources. Last night, like 11 o'clock, I found a, a textbook from Barilan University. Barilan has a whole section on conflict resolution, Jewish conflict resolution, Pardon in Barilan University. And they have a textbook, 142 pages. 142 pages on Jewish perspective on conflict resolution. Thank you.